Welcome to the Academy Podcast, where our mission is to improve lives through education, information, and some cool stories. My name is Mark Guadagnoli. I'm a professor of neuroscience and neurology at the Kirk Corian School of Medicine at UNLV. Today, our podcast guest is Dr. John Fields, an eminent trauma surgeon and the man who signed Tupac Shakur's death certificate. Dr. Fields will bring us stories from the operating room and some wisdom from the fishing boats. Okay. Well, John, uh, thank you for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, first, first podcast, and you're the perfect guest for this. I'm uh, just incredibly excited, and you know, I have the good fortune to be we're friends and so we get to talk just have a conversation which is great but for the audience I do want to talk a little bit about who you are and then we're going to talk about your journey as well and so sure. we can weave some additional information in so your official title uh, in addition to being the uh, chair of the Department of Surgery right. is uh, Associate Dean for External Affairs which That's is correct. a title that was created for you um, so that uh, because you know, you're so well known in the community and so forth. In fact, uh, so for all the listeners and, and to remind me, May 12th, do you know what May 12th is, by the way? No, I don't. That What's is that? John Fildes Day in oh, the city of right. Las Vegas. Yes, yes. Right. You're Mayor Carolyn Goodman. That's yeah. right. Mayor Carolyn Goodman proclaimed May 7th, May 12th. Yeah. Dr. Files Day. That's right. So, <laughs> which, you know, is a well-deserved honor. And I, and I can't remember it. You know, so you've got... Uh, Dr. John Files Day in Las Vegas, the, the President of the United States specifically called you out for mm -hmm. the work that you did with the October 1st shooting and, and uh, dealing with all the trauma victims and so forth, which we can talk about if you're open to it. I can't even imagine uh, what that was like yeah, was for you and your team. Um, and uh, you're the uh, a trauma uh, trauma Surgical Critical Care Emergency General Surgeon. Correct. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah, um, nowadays, that's called acute care surgeon. Yeah. But uh, it grew up out of uh, general surgeons who ordinarily were doing emergency general surgery cases from the emergency department who also covered trauma. And knowing that those patients were so sick, they continued to manage them in ICU. So around in the 80s, there was recognition that that actually was a unique specialty inside of surgery. And, you know, I was at kind of the tip of the wave and got right on that. Well, you know, so we're going we're gonna to get to talk about a lot of interesting things. Surgery is going to be a big piece of it. Uh, life lessons, big piece of it. I have had the great good fortune to go fishing with you, so we're going to talk about lessons right. from fishing as well. And anywhere else uh, we end up going through this whole thing. And, uh, and again, just very excited to get to talk to you today. Um, we've had a lot of these conversations over beer over, over time, and uh, I hope some of that comes out right. for us today. Well, let's get going. Okay, so let's start with, uh, let's talk about the journey. I mean, you've had a sure. very, very interesting journey all the way through uh, from early on to where you are now, and, it, and it's been phenomenal. So just uh, let us all know about that journey. Well, I'll, I'll do that. Um, I always admired, uh, there's a writing exercise called Your Autobiography in 25 Words or Less. Uh, it's very difficult to do. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Buffett did particularly well in his book, A Pirate Looks at 40. But uh, I was born in New York State, and my dad graduated college shortly thereafter and worked for IBM, which in school, the kids referred to that as I'm being moved. <laughs> and uh, we... 
got in a 57 Rambler and drive across Route 66. I turned four years old in Flagstaff, Arizona, on our way to San Jose, California, to a place that would later become known as Silicon Valley. My dad was there in the uh, IBM plant when Khrushchev came to visit. And, oh, wow. And uh, we were out there for a few years, and then we got moved again and went back to upstate New York. Can I ask you a question? How old were you when you moved back from California? Came back at five and um, started kindergarten after that. Do you remember any of that time in California? Oh, I remember all of it. Yeah. 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 My, I, it was like a stump the stars with my mom once. Uh, I, I told her about my third birthday party, and she just <laughs> said that that was crazy. But I described a birthday cake, and some years later they found a photograph, and I was right. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah. Silicon Valley at the time was just fields, right? Well, it was. I mean, we, we all lived in these little garden apartments that were surrounded by orchards, and every day more orchards got cut down and more apartments got built. Yeah. Wow. It's, so it's interesting, you know, as many times we've talked about uh, you growing up and so forth, I never realized that you had lived in California for that time. I just thought you were a New York kid growing up. So Yeah, that's, uh, it was interesting. And so... You know, I got to see uh, all of the United States out of the window of the backseat of a car. Yeah. And, uh, and then once we got back to Poughkeepsie, I went from K through 12. And uh, um, from there, I went on to college, again, in upstate New York in Schenectady. And um, while I was in college, worked my way through as an orderly in a hospital. And because I could learn things, I you know, ended up being a number uh, or filling a number of different roles uh, I was, uh, you know, regular orderly, and then I was uh, uh, a morgue attendant. And I was an EKG technician and um, an orthopedic technician. And um, after I graduated college with my bioengineering degree, I was a chief tech of a dialysis center. And by the time I went to medical school, one year later, I was kind of like MacGyver. Um, I, I already knew how to do almost everything that they would teach medical students in, up through the fourth year. What, what got you interested in medicine in the first place? Well, I'd always been interested, even when we were children and we played games, you know, I would ask to be the doctor, whether mm-hmm. it was Cowboys and Indians or Army games or make-believe games. Yeah. And, um, you know, just having experienced uh, a few physicians at work, you know, I couldn't find the words for it as a child, but what it ultimately was is I saw an intersection between science and uh human service and um, and that really uh, excited me that was something I really wanted to do and then as I got further along with it the idea that you know I could affect structure and function as part of cure um, is the underlying definition of what a surgeon does yeah yeah and, and it's interesting you know bioengineering right the mm-hmm. the engineering mindset applied to surgery. Correct. Right? You have right. to have that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, again, um, in surgery, particularly in trauma surgery, um, there's this acute need for diagnosis and intervention. And uh, there's there's not a lot of time for thinking or um, getting consults or doing other things. Uh, patients are dying faster than they're living. and You have to interrupt that process. And so... I always enjoyed that um, kind of split-second decision-making, need to be uh, well-studied, confident, uh, well-practiced. And as I moved along in my surgical career and my training, 
um, I actually got a little bored with uh, going to the operating room every day and doing the same 10 or 12 operations over and over again. In trauma, every time you open the abdomen, you've got to be prepared to do every operation that was ever described in any textbook because you don't know what you're going to get. And to me, that was just great. I mean, uh, that, that was the part of it I loved. So um, that's how I naturally gravitated to it. And then the critical care piece of it goes hand in hand. You can't just operate on these very, very sick patients. You uh, take them out of the back of the ambulance, you get them through the operating room, and then you need to get them up on their feet. And that takes place in the ICU. So, you know, we were having a conversation one time, and a, a mutual a friend came in the conversation uh, who's a golf coach. And he had mm-hmm. been a very successful golfer, played on the European tour, and played under a lot of pressure and so forth. And he asked you a question, and I'm going to, you may remember the answer to this already, mm-hmm. but he said, you know, when you go into uh, trauma surgery and you see someone whose life is in your hands, do you, do you get nervous? Do you get anxious? And he likened it to a, a, a putt that he had to make to win a tournament, uh, which granted, I mean, he wasn't trying to minimize it, but that was his experience, right? Exactly. Do you remember what you told him? I do, I do. And I've told this to many people before. Um, I'm the best chance the patient's got. And so I can't recoil from that. I've got to, I've got to step into that. You know, I run toward that. I don't run away from that. And so the confidence to move forward and know that you've given it your best shot, uh, doesn't hinge on outcome every time. Um, but if you do everything right in the right order, in the right time, um, you're more likely uh, to be successful. Success goes to the prepared. So, you know, I, I want to get back to the journey a little bit, but but this is really important, and, it, and you know, it's life, life important. Um, you could save someone's life, and you have many, many times over. But I think even in, in less dramatic situations, what you just said is critically important. Oh, it is. And that attitude of looking at a challenge as an opportunity and, and recognizing that your preparation really helps to dictate the success or failure of that. Where did that come from for you? Like, I know you played sports. I know you've done these kinds of things. But, that, you know, where does this come from? And, and then how do you teach that to other people? Yeah, I, I don't think I can put my finger on where that comes from. You know, I always, um, as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, as a medical student, as a resident, uh, when I would see a need uh, that had to be filled, and I look around and there was a vacuum, you know, I knew that I had to fill it. And, um, and so I've always had that instinct to do that. Um, and, you know, it, it, most of the time it works out, and some of the times I, I've been criticized. So, as you know, I, I served as the interim dean of the School of Medicine uh, when COVID mm-hmm. came on shore. And everyone said, oh, my God, we have this disease and it's terrible. Maybe we should send all the medical students home for a year or, you know, take the residents out of the hospital. And my response was no. I said, you know, firemen run to the fire. They don't run away from the fire. Policemen run to the trouble. They don't run away from the trouble. We're, We're doctors. We're the tip of the spear. In a healthcare emergency, we run to the emergency, not away from the emergency. And I said, I want the students to be taught how to function in the presence of a contagion there have been contagions in our population across all centuries, 
all you have to do is read the Old Testament to realize mm-hmm. that there's nothing new about this. Mm-hmm. And it just keeps coming back over and over again. And it has a different name. And this name happens to be COVID. And uh, I was overruled. And so um, I did not have the opportunity to see uh, medical students particularly take advantage of what might be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to learn how to work in a complex environment of a public health emergency caused by a contagion. And instead, they were uh, isolated and um, took on distance learning. And the entire culture of medical school teaching and training uh, to, was at attacking point, uh, going away from the illness and not towards it. Yeah, it's interesting because I I look at things very similar to you and that I see these as opportunities mm-hmm. rather than something to be afraid of, and 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 oftentimes those those difficulties that we could step into become our greatest Correct. teachers. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, and it's a shame when we don't utilize those opportunities. Yeah. So I agree. But you know there are people who have a very different philosophy for that, and that's you know, what you ran into in that situation. Mm-hmm. That is true, yes. So um, so let's move forward on the journey. You've graduated okay. from uh, from college yeah. into med school. And um, I was in those group of people applying in the 70s, which were interesting and complex times. Mm-hmm. So um, I had, my options were limited. Um, so I applied a Globally, I applied in Europe and I applied in Asia. I applied across the United States, and uh, I, I've got to stop you because I, you're not going to say this, but I'll say this: you were very successful in medical school. Yes, I was. And so, so under normal circumstances, your options wouldn't have been limited. Well, I wouldn't call them normal circumstances, but there was a kind of a social awakening and this idea of uh, rapidly moving towards. Um, what I'll have to call affirmative action, um, changed the profile of applicants that were being accepted. And um, there was also academic pressures, uh, you know, federal funding to higher education that changed. Um, Borders were going up around different states where they were catering to state residents more than they had in previous years. And, um, you know, the mighty GPA was more important than the sum of what a person was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there were all of these things. And, you know, what I took from that is uh, I wasn't competitive in in my day and time. And, uh, but I wasn't going to let that stop me. So I uh, found options in other places Mm -hmm. and uh, have no regrets, no bitterness about that. Uh, you know, another opportunity, right? Correct. Yeah. So you go on uh, to your experiences. Some of the experiences you're going to get to Cook County, I'm sure, in just a minute. <laughs> um, I can't even imagine that. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So ultimately, I was accepted um, to medical school, mostly in Europe and in the Philippines. And um, I chose to go to the Catholic University in Manila. And uh, at Santo Tomas, and that was a good choice. It was really a high rank school, very good. And by the time I was a fourth year medical school student, 
doing my uh, clerkships. I was uh, performing patient care that uh, sometimes second-year residents don't get to do. Mm-hmm. So I applied in the match. I got into general surgery in New York City in the, in the South Bronx. And uh, on the day I arrived, I learned that I had been accepted to a pyramidal residency program. Our chair walked into the conference room. We were 13 of us sitting around. And he goes, there's 13 people in this room. Look to your left. Look to your right. They're not going to be here in five years. We're graduating three of you. Uh, now, the OR's on the 10th floor. Um, get to work. Yeah. And that was the sum of my orientation. So as it turned out, I was the chief resident. And I graduated from the program. But uh, surgery in the South Bronx was complicated. Um, you know, these were really underserved populations who showed up with a lot of ne- neglected disease. There were a lot of uh, people in the immigrant population who were bringing diseases on shore, uh, surgical diseases on shore that um, we'd only heard about in the textbooks. Mm-hmm. And then the trauma was huge. Uh, when I got done, I um, made a choice to specialize in trauma and I applied and got my fellowship at Cook County Hospital. So I was a kid, people. I said, so I improved myself by moving from the South Bronx to Cook County. And uh, got there and just loved it. I mean, there was so much pathology and so many patients and so much complex surgery to do. Um, I was in my fellowship and uh, knew that I'd be finishing up, starting to think about where I was going to look for a job when the uh, trauma medical director, his name is John Barrett, called me in and he goes, you know, the faculty have been talking to me. We have an opening, and uh, we'd like to just hire you into it. And, um, and I took, a, took them up on that. But uh, I was really pleased that uh, they thought enough of me to bring me on as faculty uh, right from training. And uh, I practiced there for seven years and did thousands and thousands of gunshot wound operations, thousands and thousands of complex stab wounds and other sorts of things. Um, until I was introduced to the opportunity in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. What year was that? It was 95, 1995. And, uh, a, a, a good friend who had actually been a resident I trained, and he was in emergency medicine, was Dr. Dale Carrison, who oh, used yeah. to be the chairman of emergency medicine here. He had graduated in emergency medicine and come out here and worked for a couple of years while I was still on faculty uh, at Rush and working with U of I at Cook County. And um, in that time, Las Vegas was growing fast. This was that kind of post-'70s boom. Mm-hmm. You know, we were the fastest-growing city in the year in the United States for a decade. And um, UMC realized that uh, they are just getting crushed with trauma. They, it was disrupting their whole emergency department function. So uh, a plan was to build a trauma center building, and I believe it was all done with venture capital from the community, and was modeled after Maryland Emergency Services or MIMS in Baltimore. And so people who walk in that have been familiar with the Maryland setup go, this looks oddly similar mm-hmm. because it was a knockoff. And uh, so Dale calls back to John Barrett in Chicago and he goes, you know, we're struggling here. We're struggling to get a trauma medical director that'll come and, you know, take this on. We think it's a great opportunity, but it's, it's, got, a, it's got a really high risk-reward profile. And um, he goes, do you have anyone there who's ready? And so he goes, well, he told Dale, I, I think John Files is ready. So Dale calls me on the phone and goes, you know, we want you to come out and interview. And uh, I said, you know, Dale, I'm, I'm happy doing what I'm doing here. I'm 
rising rapidly in the ranks of the university, and uh, you know I've got notoriety in the community and so forth. My kids are going just starting school, mm-hmm. and he goes, "Well, just fly out and have dinner. At least, at least we can say we had dinner together." I said, "Okay, I'll give you that." So I came out and and interviewed, and uh, was immediately struck by the quality of the facility. Uh, I mean. At Cook County, we were seeing like 6,000 heavy trauma patients a year, and, and our facilities were awful compared to what they had here. And the volume was really high here. And so um, it really was, a, a, you know, a, a ship in need of a captain more than anything else. So um, I accepted the job. So uh, some people who know Dr. Dale Carrison mm-hmm. will know he was the uh, – he was the chair for emergency medicine for years. He yeah, also decades. is a, a, yeah, decades, right? He's a living, breathing uh, storybook. He uh, sure is. What a remarkable human being. Sure so, is. yeah, that would have been a, an impressive combination between you and, and Dale. Yeah, well, so, we worked side by side for years, yeah. and I think that had a lot to do with why the emergency department, the trauma center, and emergency services in general across all specialties uh, grew so rapidly and grew so well. Yeah, well, you know, this gets us to, uh, will eventually get us to October 1, mm-hmm. um, and uh, with you being involved in that, but but between when you got here in 95 and just a few years ago, what were some of the experiences that you had and the lessons that you learned through UMC, through the university, and so forth? Well, I mean, probably more than I can put into this podcast, but some of the most memorable uh, part of why I was recruited was because the trauma center here was failing uh, as a level two. And I was brought in um, to save it at the 11th hour, which I did. And then within one year, I, um, I had it reevaluated, and we became the first and only level one trauma center in the state of Nevada, and we still are. And then... Um, not too long after that, we applied to become the first and only pediatric trauma center in the state of Nevada, and we still are. And after that, we applied and created a trauma fellowship and a surgical critical care fellowship, which was the first and only in the state of Nevada, and still is. Um, and we went on to have a long list of first and onlys. Our burn center, which was founded long before I came, um, but I had a hand in developing it, became the first American Burn Association approved burn center in state, first and only, and it still is. You know, it's interesting because that's, uh, those are remarkable accomplishments, and it's a little bit sad that it still is, right? Yes. It still is the only one in the state and, and all the way through. I mean, again, remarkable accomplishments. Any one of those is a remarkable accomplishment, and then you string all those together, it's yeah. just incredible. And I think the crowning jewel on that really was that when the professional organizations involved in emergency medical care, emergency surgical care, uh, and trauma decided to package trauma with critical care burns and emergency general surgery into a new specialty called acute care surgery, um, I uh, wrote the first application and we became the first approved fellowship in the United States here. Still the first and only in the, the first state. in the United States. First in the United States. Wow, I didn't know that. That's yeah. a, that's amazing. So, yeah. So we train every year. We're graduating for either four or five um, fully competent, ready to go uh, acute care surgeons, and many of them are s- practicing here in Nevada. 
and others are practicing all around the United States. So it's a pretty wide network of our graduates. Yeah, that's fantastic. How many would you say, I mean, I could do the math, but how many would you say that there are currently practicing that have come through that program? Well, just for trauma and acute care surgery, uh, probably about a third of our graduates. Uh, We have some in Reno. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have uh, some in other hospitals in the city here. Uh, If I look at the the general surgical residency, which I've also had a a long history with, again, I would say about a third of our residents have stayed in state. But we would have had more if we had other training opportunities or other fellowships where they could have stayed here, trained here, and practiced here. And, and at this point, most of your administrative duties were with UMC. Uh, you had not become the chair of the department yet? That's correct. Okay. And so then take us through that piece as well. Well, you know, the, the focus of my work really was the trauma center, mm-hmm. and uh, we were tested in a number of ways. For example, I think it was 2002 when the medical liability crisis hit. And we were on the national news. Uh, one morning after night call, I had to come down and all of the staff had resigned because nobody had liability insurance and the malpractice crisis caused us to close the trauma center. And we just told the ambulances go to the closest hospital, there's no more trauma care. And that precipitated a conversation with the governor who came down to the trauma center and pledged to uh, call the state assembly in and that's when they passed Nevada's form of MICRA, which is the um, Medical Liability Act, which got all the doctors back to work. So the trauma center was a catalyst uh, for all of that. And uh, as I I went forward, uh, we ended up having more and more of a role at the county level for the Southern Nevada Health District and creating the the trauma system plan that still operates here today. And I had more input at Carson City and I've actually helped to write NRS 450 um, and NAC in, in their rewrites with regard to trauma care. So the center itself, and, and particularly my contributions, have been, um, have been statewide. Uh, and that kind of recognition um, led to me being invited to work with the American College of Surgeons. During that period, um, I helped found the National Trauma Data Bank. I remember on 9-11, the Senate called for uh, people to testify from the trauma community and emergency medicine community. And they wanted to know whether or not the country was ready to, uh, to medically manage this kind of an attack. And, um, you know, at that time, um, computers were running DOS. Mm-hmm. And Windows 95 was the most advanced software program. And I remember being asked by the Senate committee, you know, how many trauma centers are in the United States and where are they located? How many patients do they see every year? What percent live and die? And who pays the bills for that? And we we couldn't answer any of those questions. So I dedicated myself towards the creation of the National Trauma Data Bank and edited and wrote the first uh, five national reports. And recognition for that work led to me being selected as the national chairman of trauma for the American College of Surgeons, a post I held for four years. And after that, promoted to manager of trauma programming for the American College of Surgeons for another four years, which I did simultaneous with my duties at UMC and the university. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of leadership and administrative on-the-job training, if you will. So when um, 
the School of Medicine started to call on me, it was for things like stepping in as vice chair in 2002. Um, both the chair and the dean were let go, and um, one of my partners, a plastic surgeon, Bill Zamboni, became the chair. He asked me to be his vice chair and the program director of the residency. And we took some pretty hard knocks for the next couple of years, but got this, the department back up on its feet. So I served him as a vice chair for 13 years until his death. And um, then I was asked by the dean of UNR, Dean Schwenk, to take on the acting role. And later on, I was uh, given um, the full title of chair of surgery for, um, for UNR. And then Barbara Atkinson invited me when we converted to become the inaugural chair of surgery at UNLV, and I, I jumped at the chance. I mm -hmm. thought that would be fantastic. In fact, I think there's a story you know, which um, uh, I've told in public before, but when I came here in 1995 to my first interview, I didn't really understand why the School of Medicine was in Reno and all the residencies and all the medical school rotations were in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. it's, it's common in the Western Intermountain States in those years, but it was not common where I'd come from on the East Coast or the Central U.S. And so here's the Dean of UNR and the Chair of Surgery for UNR, and uh, I'm, in, I'm in the room, and they you know, did some meet and greets, and then he said, well, before we get going, do you have any questions? And I go, yes, yeah, so let me understand this. So it's UNLV that's the medical school here? And they nearly put me back in a taxi and sent me to the airport. <laughs> yeah. My interview here was almost over at 20 minutes. I just didn't understand. just didn't make sense to me why there wasn't a school here. Yeah. So I spent two decades campaigning for that school to be opened. Mm -hmm. And um, was just enormously grateful to Dr. Barbara Atkinson for um, pushing it across the goal line. I mean, she was the founding dean, and she got it done. She got the doors open. I think the you know, it's one of those things that's, that will be hard to recognize for a while, mm -hmm. the importance of that vision, of her vision, really, to mm -hmm. get the school uh, up and running. And, and she, the work that she did was incredible. And, and you know, uh, yeah, I think the state owes a debt to her. They do. For the work that the, she they did. Yeah. yeah, she had a lot of barriers thrown up, mm -hmm. and she figured out ways to navigate them and got the doors open. Um, and, um, you know, that's a, that's a winner. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I started my work then as, uh, inter as the, uh, inaugural chair of surgery, uh, I've continued to grow the residency and grow the department, uh, hire more surgeons. Uh, we've been very financially successful. We've been academically successful with publications and presentations at the national and international level. We've sent people off to prestigious postgraduate training programs. So I'm very proud of that track record. Well, as someone who counts the uh, activity of different departments, it's remarkable to me with the clinical output that your department has, but the scholarship, the teaching, that whole aspect, it's, it's really remarkable. I mean, it's a, it, it is a model that I think a lot of our departments could hopefully follow. Well, thank you. That's kind. I, I owe it to the faculty because um, they're entirely dedicated to the vision. You know that, like a three-legged stool, any one of them could have been enormously successful in private practice, but they chose the three-legged stool: patient care, academics, and service to the university and the community. Yeah. Well, the you know the old saying, John, the fellowship follows the leadership, right? So, so uh, yeah, and. 
So I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that you experienced. You've experienced all the way through with in Manila and Cook County and you know in mm-hmm. UMC. And uh, the October one, you know, this is something that's I think burnt into the memory certainly of those people who uh, live in Las Vegas. Yeah, there's and, no question. Um, what was that like for you? Like, what was the experience that you had with that? Um, when I lecture on this, you know, I try to tell people that it's, it's a weekend. Sunday afternoon turns into Sunday evening. You're thinking about getting ready for work on Monday morning. And about 15 minutes after 10, the phone rings. And they say, something really bad's happened. A lot of people got shot, come to the hospital. So I drove in, and um, the streets were empty. And there was two rings of uh, police security around the hospital. Um, when I got through them, I, I walked into the trauma center, and there's already 35 people with gunshot wounds laying there, and there's blood all over the floors. And you know, the staff on hand was doing their very, very best to manage that, but it was more than any small group of people could manage. So we had to amplify up our response and bring in other surgical teams and anesthesia teams, and we had to get more nursing in the OR. We, the uh, CEO, uh, Mason Van Hoolen, was with me, and, and Dale Kerrison, the chief of emergency medicine, and like a triumvirate. Um, we did command and control style uh, management for uh, that event until it quieted down. And um, we were able to open up other areas in the hospitals so we could expand our patient care into day surgery and into the recovery rooms and get extra ORs open. You know, we got extra laboratory, more blood, and uh, just got to work. So that particular night, you know, everyone, we had 110 patients come to us in the first few hours. And um, of all of those patients, anyone who arrived alive survived. Wow, that's amazing. We had a couple of DOAs, but anyone who came in with a pulse still breathing survived. Um, so we were able to uh, get the criticals into the operating room. And, you know, I, I was making the rounds up and down the OR halls. And uh, essentially, um, in the abdomen, I was telling people to stop the bleeding, staple off the bowel, wash it out, pack it, bring it back tomorrow, finish it. You know, I want every room to turn in under 90 minutes. Because to me, the ferocity and the scope of that event led me to believe that this would be like Paris was a few years earlier, where multiple cells opened up in multiple locations Mm -hmm. on the same night. Mm -hmm. To me, the ferocity of this attack uh, could be a single shooter. But to me, I thought it was unlikely. And so I needed to conserve the blood bank, and I needed to turn the ORs, and I needed to be able to take for up to, say, 12 hours or maybe 24 hours, I need to be able to turn 110 patients every two hours. That's remarkable. So just as a matter of perspective, what would be a normal patient turn? So in trauma, uh, we might put 25, 30 through every 24 hours. And you're talking about turning 100 every couple of hours? Correct. Yeah. And with triage, you know, there there is a science to everything and there's a science to disaster and there's, you know, it's an 80-20 or a 90-10 rule. You know, the people who are dead are dead on the scene. Uh, the people who um, are wounded walk away. But the people who need to be transported for high-level trauma care are small in comparison. Mm-hmm. 
And that's exactly what happened. So while we had 110 patients uh, walk up or be driven up and dropped off, um, probably about 80% of them, because these were gunshot wounds, about 80% of them were wounded, walking wounded. Um, and then the other 20 either needed to go to the operating room emergently or they were queued up for surgeries to start in the morning. So they would be like extremity fractures right. or soft tissue injuries or things like that. So in total over the 24-hour period, how many uh, people came in, how many patients? I, I think we, we topped out probably because people then dribbled in through, right. through the day. We probably topped out in the mid-150, 175 range. Um, we really filled the whole hospital. Virtually every bed, whether it was in the admitting area, the day surgery, recovery room, I mean, every bed in the hospital was filled. Well, there were and people in the halls as well. Yeah, and, sitting on chairs. Yeah. yeah, their wounds were dressed and they were put on chairs and um, they were queued up for um, treatments and doctor visits. Yeah, uh, remarkable. You know, I hadn't thought about it until you just told the story. But so, you know, obviously now we know about you and your background. Mason was uh, came from the military. Correct. And Dale was a sheriff prior to being. And an FBI agent. FBI. So you had people who had, you know, some training in those types of situations, those emergency types of situations. Obviously, Dale's an emergency physician, but... Um, yeah, the structure and, and discipline that had to be exercised in that situation, um, you needed people that, that knew that. Right? And there's something else that goes into this conversation. I was asked the following day, uh, when the sun rose, we looked across the street and there was a village of international press, broadcast press, all set up in a parking lot across the street. It was a madhouse. They were all trying to get interviews. And um, I ended up becoming the spokesperson um, or this and you know they said well this is remarkable how how come how, how did you do this and I said well we practiced I said they just had the Pulse nightclub shooting a couple of months ago uh, we had a we had a, a physician from there lecture to us about mm -hmm. that and we practiced our disaster plan so that if we had something like that we would be ready we had no idea we'd have to amplify our response to a level like this but I said we were ready we practiced it's a, that's interesting. I remember talking, you know, us talking about this a little bit. Why did you, what was the thought process to bring that person in to, uh, to walk through these things with you? I mean, in hindsight, it makes perfect sense, mm -hmm. right? And of course you would do that. But not everybody was doing that. So what was the thought process to bring that person in? Well, it's good medicine. And for those of us practicing in the arena of trauma and emergency care, um, you want to learn uh, from people who learned the hard way. You don't want to have to relearn it on your own. So I would say it's a fairly routine um, way of staying current. So. It's interesting. I think about outside of medicine, mm -hmm. how much we could learn from people who have had experiences that we want to prevent, correct, right, and how rarely that happens, correct, um, yeah. and and you know there are places where I think medicine could borrow from other areas, and there are places where other areas definitely could borrow from medicine. No, I well. agree a hundred percent. Our relationship with the military, I think, has transformed our surgical training program in our department, and um, 
we have five residents that graduate each year. Two are active duty residents, and they're deployed right away after graduation. Mm-hmm. So our brand, when when we interview new medical students, they say, well, tell me about your program. What does your residency have that others don't? And they said, we are, by design, training you to be a complete and an independent surgeon at the end of five years of training. You don't need to go on to fellowships unless you have a specific academic purpose for doing so. But if you want to go to private practice, you can. Please know that your colleagues who are active duty are going to be deployed. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the curriculum for that was really based on my time as a consultant um, with the military, both stateside uh, in Lashdul, Germany, and downrange in Afghanistan, both in Bagram and Kandahar. And uh, we were studying uh, with the Air Force surgical units how do you get somebody who's fresh out of residency and put them on a battlefield? What's, what's, the, what's the gap analysis and what's the training module, the short, quick training module to get them up right. to speed to get them on the battlefield? And the next question was, um, how do you do that for people that are in the reserves that are in private practices in smaller communities? And the third question was, once you've got them up to speed uh, and they're in between deployments, how do you maintain currency? And so around that, we developed... Um, a surgical residency curriculum that addressed that. And we also developed what is now known as the SMART program, Sustainment of Medical and Resuscitative Training, which uh, trains teams of individuals to hone their battlefield medical skills by embedding them into the trauma program and the emergency surgery program. And uh, so we have uh, faculty uh, that come into our hospital and train all the residents with us. And our residents rotate in the federal hospital on the Air Force Base. Um, so that military-civilian partnership has been described uh, as far up as the Pentagon as really being uh, the most ideal model um, that's currently operating in the United States. It's, uh, you know, the, the work that, uh, that you've done, that Dr. Jeremy Kilborn's done, who I think the world of, of him and the work that he's done as well, um, it is remarkable. I mean, even from my perspective, it becomes a, a model for how to do it. And like you said, I mean, I think it was a year or two ago when we had folks from the Pentagon that were here uh, because of the success of the model that you two have put together. It's true. Yeah, they, they, uh, they thought very highly of the way that it was put together mm-hmm. and understood that uh, in general, you know, the, the, our military forces are made up of young, healthy individuals uh, who don't see, who don't become critically ill, uh, except when injured in deployment. And to keep surgeons and uh, pulmonologists and anesthesiologists at the cutting edge, ready to, to work, is tough when they're they're stationed on bases that are fairly quiet. It's interesting. I, I remember he- having a conversation with one of our military physicians, uh, who was a surgeon, active duty. Uh, military, and he was telling me, he was uh, special ops, mm-hmm. and he was telling me about having to perform surgery on a helicopter as they were moving the person off of the battlefield. And I thought, it's got to be difficult enough, mm-hmm. right, when everything's stable. And then you've got that kind of a situation, and the, the, the gap analysis that you're talking about, right, being able to not only train in that gap, but having people of the mindset to be able to handle situations that are brand new, they've never experienced, never even thought about, um, those kinds of things. You know, that type of training 
um, like what you did to bring people in after the uh, after the nightclub shooting, right? To really think through down the road. Again, these are things that I think are imperative in medicine, but they can help other industries as well. Yeah, there's no doubt. Yeah, there's no doubt. And um, even some of our surgeons who've gone and done mission surgery in other countries too. Um, part of the training we would tell them is that um, sometimes the enemy of good is better. Mm-hmm. So uh, the simple operation that's fast, efficient, and safe mm-hmm. in the austere environment is superior to the complex surgery that requires many resources and personnel, uh, and you get better results. And that's, that's hard to understand. But whether you're in that situation or you're down downrange in, in the military or you're in a disaster, the, the motto is do the most for the most. Mm. And uh, in doing so, uh, you get the best results. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, I, I don't want to let you out of here before <laughs> we get to some. I know you've got a little black book of, uh, of lessons. Uh, like I said, I've been fortunate enough to go fishing with you, and, and there were lots of lessons that I learned from you there. So let's talk about some of your favorite, some of the things that you think are most important lessons in life. Um, I can't wait for your book to come out, by the way, oh, when you actually uh, put all those notes together. Yeah. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about the things that you think are really important lessons in life, medicine, outside of medicine, whatever you think. Well, you know, I- Asking the question that way was a sure way to um, jam me up. So, <laughs> yeah. I've never seen that happen, yeah, John. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, we—it uh, was funny when we go fishing together. Uh, it's really like this kind of. There's an excitement to get out there, and there's anticipation, and then there's actually a letdown because you, you, when the action is missing, it's, you, you have boredom, and then you have absolute sheer terror for a few minutes when. Um, these, these great big fish come on and, and you've got, you know, you, you fight until you're sweaty and you fall over and you're tired. Uh, and then you get back up and do it again. Uh, and, and that's actually the thrill of it. You're on this, uh, you're on the roller coaster ride, mm-hmm. you know, and um, the roller coaster is not made up of just peaks. That's made up of valleys. Yeah. And, um, you know, that leads to me to, to one of the things that we've talked about. One of my, my one of my first, uh, Lessons is that um, comes from the myth of Sisyphus, where he pushes the rock up the hill and it rolls down the other side, and he's doomed for eternity to push it back up again. Um, too often, we're all trained to think that if you work really hard and do the right thing, that you will reach some sort of plateau where there'll be smooth sailing. Um, but it's just the top of the next roller coaster. You, know, and you just have to steel yourself. You just have to be ready, and you just have to know that. Um, Ups and downs are the natural rhythm, and uh, you know, you've got to be good in both. You know what's really fascinating to me about that? Um, first of all, by the way, I, I wrote this down. The roller coaster is not just made up of peaks, which is probably the hundredth John Fouts quote that I have written <laughs> down. But, uh, but one of the things that's fascinating to me about that is you're, as you're describing the fishing, uh, one of the things I... I can't say that I've learned, but I'm learning about fishing is it becomes very enjoyable as soon as you can surrender to the moments where you're not active. Correct. Correct. Right. Mm-hmm. 
and um, otherwise you're just anxious and worried and you know all kinds of thoughts go through your head but once you get to enjoy that part have conversations and so forth um, it's really interesting that you said that you know um, I think you know again this is life right when you can enjoy those moments that aren't a peak that aren't a, a valley and and the whole thing you know, for what it is, you right. enjoy it for what it is, then uh, then life becomes uh, much more enjoyable, much more interesting, and, and so forth. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I pointed out before, they call it fishing, not catching. You know, you yeah. don't go catching. Um, and so it's the entire experience. And uh, when there are lulls, you look around, and you're in beautiful places, and you're, you've got friends, and you spend time, and mm-hmm. you pass time with quality. Um you know, I do have, and I have had um, anxious guests along on fishing trips, and I, and I have to tell them, I took you fishing, not catching. Uh, if we're uh, lucky and we have a good day, we'll catch a few. But it's the whole, it's the whole journey. It's mm-hmm. the whole experience. I mean, it, it seems like just a, an overstated, uh, you know, it's the journey, but it is. Oh, yes. It is. I mean, <laughs> the statement's there for right. a reason, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and our ability to sort of just let go and be at peace with what's happening, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and then I, I think back to situations that you've been in and, and trauma situations, mm-hmm. and there are times where you let go and there are times where you're 100% uh, involved and right. in the moment and and being able to, to style flex between those yes. is a real skill set. Yeah, you have to be able to go manage tight, manage loose. you got to yeah. be able to work it both ways. But... Uh, to this point is uh, the importance of, uh, of playing games. So I know you're a golfer, a good golfer. Um, I don't share golfer. that. I, uh, you know, if I, for me, I don't have a handicap system other than trying to shoot less than my weight in pounds. <laughs> but I, I love the game, and I like to play the game. And for a long time, that was missing from me in my career. I was all head down, work, 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 mm-hmm. go home, take care of family, go back to work. And I realize that things like golf or, or fishing are these short breaks where for four or five hours um, you become so absorbed and so immersed in, in making a white ball fall in a hole mm-hmm. or, or, or trying to deliver uh, a feathered fly to a hungry trout that you don't think about work. You don't think about your problems. and It all turns itself off. You don't turn it off probably spend the rest of your 24 hours trying to turn it off mm-hmm. or trying to analyze it or trying to um, in some way um, rationalize it. But, but when you play games, uh, and that's the beauty of children, and it's, we can do it as adults, mm-hmm. you lose yourself in those moments and they're very enjoyable. It, you know, it's interesting. We've talked about this before. The uh, What I refer to as the uh, the elite performer cycle, mm-hmm. right? So if you think about it, elite performers, they spend uh, a little bit of their time, a very little bit of their time, you know, small percentage in competition. And then they spend a, a little bit larger time in training. The huge majority of their time is spent in recovery, mm-hmm. you know, smart recovery. Most of us do the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. And so those times that we have... Uh, you know, to fish or golf or those kinds of things. Those are opportunities for active recovery. And, man, if we don't enjoy that, yeah. <laughs> life becomes pretty uh, pretty uh, yeah. 
you know, difficult to get through because those moments are so important. I, I think even just understanding the importance of those moments helps them be even more yeah. joyful. There's no doubt. Yeah. I love the story of the farmer who's got a gigantic oak tree in the front yard that some, through some means died. And so he said, well, I, I better have it cut down before it falls and damages the house. So he gets his best farm hand. He says, tomorrow morning, I want you to cut the tree down. So just as the sun's coming up, he hears wood being chopped and a saw and goes out there and finds the fellow working on this tree to cut this tree down. It goes on for hours. Comes back around lunchtime. The fellow's like drenched in sweat, nearly exhausted, still working on the tree. And he goes, uh, you know, the tree would be easier to cut down if you would sharpen the saw. And he goes, I don't have time to sharpen <laughs> the saw. I'm cutting the tree down. Yeah. And we get into that. Yeah. We fall into that all the time. And... Um, you know, unless you've got quality recovery time, uh, you can't be at uh, the highest level of performance in your game or in your profession or with your family. You know, and it, it becomes a much, much more important thing. Most people have a mid-career revelation because they've forgotten or failed to do that. It's one of the things, you know, in, in coaching that I do, uh, one of the things that we spend a great deal of time with is is the recovery piece, mm -hmm. right? That's the one that people don't naturally take care of. They take care of working hard. They take care of those types of things, right? Mm -hmm. but they don't take care of that piece, and, and I agree with you. Uh, it's interesting. I've heard you say many times the idea of sharpening the saw. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard that story. But, um, and, and you've said, you know, I'd, rather spend two hours sharpening the saw and an hour cutting than five hours cutting. Right. Right. And, um, and it's so true. Right. And most of us are in such a hurry to cut. We don't spend the time sharpening the saw, which, you know, the, the, the return on investment, the ROI on these kinds of things and our recovery states mm -hmm. is huge. And we, you know, but I think this is especially true in Western society I would agree. You know, just we we say, oh, I didn't sleep at all last night. I, I worked as a badge of honor, mm -hmm. right? And that should have been, well, that's stupid. Why didn't you sleep, yeah. right? Why didn't you prepare appropriately for the big presentation today? Um, and I think about the consequences of that in medicine. Um, you know, I remember somebody, a colleague on campus one time saying, you know, I guess you slow down a lot during the summer. And I was like, no, we don't slow down during the summer. And, uh, and she yeah. said, well, at least you don't have any emergencies you have to deal with. And I'm like, every day. Yeah. They don't you know? stop. Yeah. And, but from their perspective, mm -hmm. students aren't there and, and emergencies are very different. It's this piece of paper that needs to be turned in today and so forth. And, um, but it's really interesting how the consequence of failure Mm -hmm. What you do compared to what most of us do is completely different. Yeah, it's on a different level. Yeah. And so, so why not borrow some of the skill sets and the tools that you have that can be extracted to other areas outside of medicine? Yes, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So. And as you, know, you point out, life goes on. Um, a good example of it is that even during one October, but even during other, almost all every other major disaster in the United States, if you study hospital logs, you know, babies are still being born. People still have appendicitis, and life goes on. Mm -hmm. Nothing stops because of that. You just have to manage it on two fronts. Yeah. 
Well, uh, ironically, that's a great place for us to stop, John. And I, okay. I so appreciate this. This was so much fun. Yes, um, good to be here. Yeah, enjoyed it. And yeah. uh, very, very happy to have you as guest number one. Well, thanks. And uh, if you think up another great list of questions, I'd be happy to come back. I, I already have a okay. <laughs> writing as we've been talking. So thank All you right. so much. Oh, you're appreciate welcome. it.